Hello, this is Professor Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today we are talking about civil procedure. episode, I talk with Professor Randolph McLaughlin. Professor McLaughlin teaches several courses here at the Elizabeth Powell School of Law at Pace University, procedure and tort, but he's best known for his civil rights work. He's won several landmark cases, including cases against the Ku Klux Klan and election voting rights cases. But today we're talking about impersonum jurisdiction, and Professor McLaughlin's clear articulation of the rules and explanation helps you understand why he's so persuasive with juries. All right, well, thank you for joining me, and um, we are going to talk about impersonum jurisdiction, and which I have not studied since International Shoe. I don't know if that's still a thing, International it's, Shoe. It's a huge thing. It's a big shoe. Terrific. All right, so tell me, what is impersonum jurisdiction? What do students need to know? Okay, so we call it impersonum jurisdiction. Okay. But I guess impersonum is just as good. Um, Impersonum jurisdiction is the power of the court to decide whether or not your property can be taken from you at the end of a case. In other words, if the court doesn't have impersonum jurisdiction, then they can't issue a judgment that will bind you or will determine whether or not you lose property. Okay. That's what it is. All right. So basically, if I sue you because you hit me in a car accident and you now owe me $10,000, right? And I want to collect the $10,000. If the court does not have in personam jurisdiction over you, they can't order you to pay. To pay my $10,000. The classic ancient example from the days of Pinoy Vinet. Okay. We're talking oh, 19th gosh. century. Yes. And in those days, if if I came into New York, and I'm from Connecticut, and I ran into your car and creamed you, mm-hmm. and then went back to Connecticut, you couldn't serve a subpoena or a summons, a complaint, on me in Connecticut. Right. Back in the old days, because a summons and complaint could not leave the state that issued it. So if New York State issues a summons and complaint to you, you could only serve it within New York State borders. But then in the early 20th century, when we moved to it, I call it the interregnum period, okay. before shoe. Okay. We start to develop long-arm statutes. And long-arm statutes start to say, essentially, if you commit certain acts within my state, I can then serve a summons against you outside the state but only for things listed in the long-arm statute. New York has a long-arm statute. Okay. So if I commit a tort in New York, mm-hmm. I'm from Connecticut, mm-hmm. you can send that summons and complaint to me in Connecticut and make me come back. So that's the basic structure. Shoe changed everything. All right, so okay. So how did shoe change all of that? Okay. So shoe was the first um, attempt by the Supreme Court to establish certain rules around extraterritorial jurisdiction, that's what we call it. Okay. When we say extraterritorial, we mean whether the court has the power to force you back into a state. That's extraterritorial, extraterritorial jurisdiction. And in shoot, the court said, well, if the defendant had certain minimum contacts with the state mm-hmm. such that it would not offend traditional notions of fair play and substantial justice... I can force you to come back into my state. Okay. Um, but you know, what do those words mean? Right. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it's not minimal contact. Right. It's a minimum contact. So 
And the court says, well, you know, we're not, they had, but between the Panoia test and Chu, they developed this set of rules at the state level, not the federal level, um, called the doing business test. And the doing business test said, well, if you have an office in New York, if you have employees in New York, then we can force you to come back into the state if you're out of state. So wait, I'm going to interrupt you. So yeah. going back to your hypothetical, right? Post Panoia versus Neff, pre-international shoe, if you lived in Connecticut and I lived in New York and you happened to be cutting through New York to get to New Jersey mm-hmm. and you hit me yep. and you owed me $10,000 for my harm, the long-arm statute would allow New York to go into Connecticut, grab yeah, your you claim. Right. That's right. After that, we have international shoe and international shoe says it's not enough if you're going through New, Jer- New York to get from Connecticut to New Jersey. You need what's called minimum contacts. Right. But that could be but so but that could be a minimum contact. You That's need, right. right. Driving through New York could be a minimum contact. Most of the um, cases that we discuss in the minimum contact arena are commercial cases. Okay. So you have commercial actors, merchants selling products, and the product injures you. Not generally a tort like a car accident. Mm-hmm. So what the court says in shoe was. We don't want to just measure how many times your product entered the state. That's not what we're doing any longer. All right. So it's not a quantitative test, how much, how many. It's a qualitative test. So if you send one nuclear bomb into my state and it blows it up, I can bring jurisdiction. Okay. The classic case in terms of this issue was a nuclear bomb. It was a nuclear? No. No. Okay, good. (laughs) It was a water heater. Okay. So... It was um, Gray the American Radiator. So Ms. Gray bought a water heater mm-hmm. in Illinois. Mm-hmm. The water heater was manufactured in Pennsylvania. But a component part, the safety valve, was manufactured in Ohio. So the Ohio company sold it to the folks in Pennsylvania. They put it into the, to their water heater. And then they shipped the water heater to Illinois. So Mrs. Gray wanted to <laughs> sue not just the radiator company, but the, person, the company that made the valve. And they said, whoa, wait a minute. We haven't had any contact with your state. We didn't sell the valve to you. There's only one valve in, 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 in Illinois. Right. And the court, Supreme Court of, of Illinois said, if your product is moving in the stream of commerce and you put the product into that stream and it gets swept into the state, then we have jurisdiction over you in our state. And that makes sense anyway, because you're getting the, I mean, the Ohio um, parts manufacturer is getting the benefit of selling that part to someone in Illinois. They're that, making money, and right? So they're, right. if they're reaping the benefits, then they, they should have to be responsible. Th- that, w- that was the notion, mm-hmm. but then along comes another case, okay. which caused huge, huge problems, and that was Asahi. And in Asahi, to be frank, all heck breaks loose. Okay. And this is the Supreme Court case. Supreme Court of the United States. Right. And the court splits in three ways. It was a major, major thing. So we had Justice O'Connor, mm-hmm. who was a moderate conservative. And we had Justice Brennan, who was a straight-up liberal. And we had Justice Stevens, who became a liberal, but he wasn't always. And they were three different opinions. Now, in Asahi, it was even crazier than Shu, okay. even crazier than Gray. Here we have two foreign companies, mm-hmm. one from Taiwan, right? one from Hong Kong, okay. and no, no, one from Taiwan, and one from Japan. 
Asahi was from Japan. And Asahi made valves for uh, motorcycle tires. And so this guy in, in, in California has a major act. He has a motorcycle, tire loses air, his wife dies, he gets seriously injured. He sues everybody in sight, but he also sues the tire manufacturer and the valve component manufacturer. That's Asahi. Okay. Zercher is the name of the plaintiff. He settles the case with everybody. He's out. So the only two claims that were left in the case were claims between the Japanese company and the Taiwanese company. Because the Japanese company wanted to indemnify the Taiwanese company, well, the, or vice versa. Yes, it was an indemnification contract claim, Okay. which during the course of the underlying litigation had been you know, asserted in that underlying litigation. Okay. So the question was, did the court in California have jurisdiction over the Japanese company? So the question was, what kind of contact did they have? So O'Connor writes a decision that takes jurisdiction to a wholly other level. All right. She says, you know, it's not good enough that your product wound up in the state through the stream of commerce. She says, no, no, no. The defendant must take some affirmative step to affiliate itself with that jurisdiction. You must send the product directly into the state, number one. That's one way. Two, you can market your products in the state. Three, you can set up mechanisms for servicing customers in the state. But you have to deliberately affiliate your company or your products with the state. No longer will a product just get swept into the state in the stream. So four judges agree with that. All right. O'Connor and three others. Then we have four more judges. I call it the Brennan Gang of Four. Mm -hmm. They said, no, 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 no. There's no need for that kind of additional contact. All you need is to put your product in a stream of commerce, and if it moves through that stream and it winds up in the state, so long as you have some awareness, and they don't tell us how much and how you get it, how you prove it, but as long as you have some awareness that the product could be sold or marketed in the state, we have jurisdiction wherever the product wound up. That's four and four. Right. Oh. Stevens okay. rejects everybody. He says, no, 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 no. This shoe business, this minimum contact stuff is ridiculous. It's too fuzzy. I can't tell. It's not a bright line rule. It's very vague and amorphous. He doesn't say all those things, yeah. but that's what he's saying because he comes up with another rule. He says, well, the way to determine whether or not we have jurisdiction over an out-of-state resident who's not present in the forum at the time of commencement is if, by examining the volume of products that defend in a ship in the state, the value of the product to the defendant, how much money are you pulling out of our state? And third, how dangerous is your product? If you're selling bananas, that's not a very dangerous product. But if you're selling atomic bombs or water heaters, those are dangerous products. Right. Nobody, well, I'm sorry, two other judges agree with him. Okay. So that was the state of the law. Yeah. Well, how'd you know which rule to follow? Well, you had to look at your circuit. Right. And because Oh, because this right. was resolving a split in the circuits. It, it, well, they tried to. Well, it was potentially. And just as a aside, you teach civil procedure, you I, also teach torts. I do. People can slip and fall on bananas. They can, but they're not inherently dangerous. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're back. Um, so, I see. Okay. It gets worse. 
before it gets worse, let's just kind of take a moment and say, first we have Pernoyer versus Neff. Yep. Then we have International Shoe. Yep. Following, oh, then we have Gray. Gray and, yes, and before follow, Asahi. Oh, before Asahi, right. And following Gray, the circuits are not all in compliance. I'm assuming that's there's why a there's a split. Right. Supreme Court decides Asahi. We're hoping we're going to get some rule, but the split kind of continues. Matter of fact, in the O'Connor decision, she says there's a split in the circuits. Remember, Gray was a, was a state court case, mm-hmm. but the circuits, after another case called Worldwide, mm-hmm. had split between needing additional activity, directing, or stream of commerce. So O'Connor says, we wanted to resolve that split among the circuits. Right. To have uniformity across the country in the federal courts. The problem was, you only need four votes to get a case heard in the Supreme Court. Right. So you had four Brennan votes, Mm -hmm. you had four O'Connor votes. Mm -hmm. Stevens was the outlier. Mm -hmm. Everybody was trying to get Stevens to join their bandwagon, Mm -hmm. and Stevens went on his own. He said, no, I'm not satisfied with any of this stuff. He threw his hands up. So that was, so that was the state of the law. So you, had a, you didn't have a majority decision on, in terms of which rule was the rule. Okay. So then, when that happens, the state, the, the, the federal courts and the states, too, are free to kind of pick whichever one they want. So courts did that. So the split's still within the circuit. So now you, we're in the Second Circuit in New York. You've got to look into which rule does the Second Circuit adopt. And we've had some changes in the composition of the court, but not sufficient to really tip the court in one direction or another. It's still pretty much four conservatives, four liberals, and one moderate conservative who's now Kennedy. So he swings, you know. So, so these these two rules are still the rules. Yeah. Oh wow! All right. And so it's just to repeat the two rules. So what are the two choices? Purposeful direction. Meaning. Did I deliberately affiliate or send my product into that state? Have I created some mechanism to service customers in the state? Have I, you know, do I advertise in the state? Do I, do, am I engaged in any deliberate activities within the state? Then we look at this fairness question, which is the second step. Okay. But here comes... Well, wait, wait before, oh, and what's the other test? Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. Purposeful availment, stream of commerce test. That the product is moving the stream of commerce and has been swept into the state. So then I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Our hypothetical, what was it, the real case, where the um, Ohio parts manufacturer had his parts swept into Illinois. Yep. Under the purposeful availment, I assume we'd have jurisdiction. Bingo. But under the purposeful direction, I'm guessing we would not have it. Dead, dead, dead. Got it. Which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, poor Mrs. Gray, she's in bloody Ohio. Yeah. And she's injured. Right. What is she supposed to do? She's, Go to Ohio to sue this yeah, company? Yeah, she's in Illinois. And, I'm sorry. Right, yeah. She's in... Right. That's that. right. <laughs> she's in Illinois. Right. You know, right. In the case yeah. of, what happened to the poor woman, she goes downstairs to look at her laundry yeah. and hears this hissing sound right. and gallons of hot streaming water bursts out of the machine and all over. She gets like third degree burns. Yeah. So what is she to do? Matter of fact, if she goes to Ohio to sue... The Ohio company's going to say, oh, no, no, this isn't a convenient form. All the witnesses about your injuries are in Illinois. Right. Dismiss the case. And then when you get back to Illinois, they'll say, oh, no, 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 you don't have jurisdiction over us here. What? That's a good point. It's, you know, I, 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 I have problems with the purposeful direction just from a theoretical point of view. Because the reality is, to what I said earlier, there's still that Ohio manufacturer, parts manufacturer will not. Parts alone are never going to make them any money. Those parts have to be part of a bigger 
entity, a bigger water heater. That's right. All right, anyway, yes. So now... Again, the court picks up another case. Oh, my goodness. This is in the late 2010, I want to say. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't have the years of funding. That's okay. Um, but the last decision in this area is a case called McIntyre. Okay. And it comes out of New Jersey. Here, we have a company that sells um, um, metal shearing machines. They cut metal, right? Mm-hmm. So this poor guy's in is in New Jersey now, and he's using this machine, cuts his fingers off. He wants to sue McIntyre, which is an English company, in New Jersey. Kennedy writes the decision, which is a shocker to me. And again, the court splits. Kennedy recounts the split between O'Connor and Brennan and says, I'm going to pick the the O'Connor decision. Purposeful direction. And there was no purposeful direction of the product by this manufacturer into New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had contact with the United States, but they didn't target New Jersey or New Jersey customers. A number of judges side with him. Two judges. Right. One liberal, one conservative. Sit in the middle, and that's Alito and Breyer. Breyer's a liberal, Alito's a conservative. Both of them say, I'm not happy with this decision. Neither of them saying what the rule should be, but they're not happy with the way the courts made the decision, and they don't agree that we should reject the other test. The purposeful development test. That's right. They don't agree. They don't disagree. Right. But that's only two justices. Right. So we've got, then we have the dissenters. Oh. Right. Sotomayor, Kagan, and my good friend, RBG. She's not really my good (laughs) friend. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she writes an opinion. The only, the only way I can describe it, and I love her, is she just vents her spleen. Okay. I mean, seriously. <laughs> she's not one. talking about rules. She's just vomiting all over the page. Okay. Just like, this is outrageous. They have contact here. I mean, people are, she looks at it from a personal point of view in terms of the injury. And if there's an injury, there should be a remedy. And this company had a lot of contact with the United States. And they were trying to, they weren't targeting New Jersey, but they were targeting the United States. So, in her mind, that was enough. Okay. She's more along the lines of the Brennan analysis, and Kennedy's stuck with O'Connor. So, the same split we saw in Asahi is the same split we now see with some differentials. I mean, you have the two in the middle. Um, they concurred in the result, so, but they didn't sign on to the, to the actual adoption of the rule. So that's the state of the law. So the state of the law is still the split, yeah. and it's still these two tests, purposeful direction and purposeful availment. Right. The volume value hazard test of Stevens drops off the planet. Okay. No one's talking about that All anymore. All right. So we don't care about that anymore. No. I tell students, don't worry about it. Okay. Then we get another crazy... Oh, my goodness. We get another crazy case. <laughs> okay. Called Goodyear. Yes. This is an opinion now mm-hmm. by Ruth Bader, okay. which everybody agrees with. All right. And you think, well, Ruth Bader, I go yeah. with Bader. Yes. Bader well, you know, her. you're like this, very close. <laughs> right, exactly. Everyone feels like they're buddies, right, with her. Yeah, even Scalia was. <laughs> so this is a case of a woman goes over, blows something at her, the boat, the plane, and it hits her. Right. So she wants to sue Goodyear, because Goodyear made the tires, and it was a crazy case. She's American. She's, I believe so. Okay. So she sues in the U.S. Oh, because Goodyear's in America. That's... Well, there was a number of Goodyear companies. Okay. okay, The Goodyear company she wanted to sue was not from the United States, it was from abroad. The accident's in France. Right, and it's a Goodyear... Goodyear's sub- is 
from the Goodyear she wants to sue is from Europe. Is from Europe, but she wants to sue in New York. In New York. All right. But there's no contact. I see. So here's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg says. She says, "Well, you're trying to get general jurisdiction over this company. It's not about contact anymore." She says, "In order to get general jurisdiction, general jurisdiction is we are suing a company not because of activities they engaged in in the state." They engage in activities someplace else, mm-hmm. but they're engaged in other activities at such a volume in the state that they're present here. That's what they say. They're essentially present. They've consented, however you want to look at it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg says that's not enough anymore. The defendant has to be, quote, at home, close quote, in the jurisdiction. That doesn't mean they're domicile. By that I mean that that's where their principal place of business is. No, she's not saying that. Of course, that would be at home. Right. She's not saying that's where you're incorporated. Of course, that's where you're at home. She just says, at home. And we have to look at the totality of circumstances. So what does that mean? Right. We have a New York State long-arm statute that, afford, that enables a plaintiff to sue an out-of-state defendant, just like the situation where, for general jurisdiction purposes, right, where they have such a volume of activity here, or they engage in interstate or international commerce. Many people, including one of my colleagues, Jay Carlisle, believes that that statute is now unconstitutional. That the long-arm statute is unconstitutional under this Goodyear case? Yes, that particular piece of the statute. What particular piece? The one where we're not measuring, we're trying to get jurisdiction over an out-of-state court company, right. not for activities they engage in in the state, mm-hmm. but activities they engage in out of the state, but that company has engaged in interstate commerce or international commerce. Right. I think he's right. So you both think he's right, but which just means it's probably, I think you're both right, because you're both very smart. Um, But I guess my question is, how does Goodyear affect the purposeful direction and purposeful unveilment tests? It it doesn't, because those tests are are specific jurisdiction tests. Now, what do we mean by that? I'm suing you about an activity you engaged in in the state. Your product entered the state, injured me. That's specific. But if your product was in Connecticut and I bought it in Connecticut and brought it back to New York. Now I want to sue you because the product blew up in New York, but I bought it in Connecticut. That's general jurisdiction because you didn't engage in any activities within my state that led to the cause of action. So Goodyear regulates general jurisdiction and then the purposeful direction and purposeful availment tests regulate specific jurisdiction. Okay, all right, so on an exam, Give me a hypothetical the students might see and how they would probably attack it. Well, the way I tell them, if there's a problem of an artist, remember these rules, the the Asahi Goodyear, Asahi McIntyre test, mm-hmm. those rules were developed to to determine whether we had jurisdiction over a non-present, non-resident defendant. Right. And when we say non-present. That means the defendant wasn't present in the state when they were served with the summons and complaint. Non-resident means the defendant's not a domicile of the state. And a domicile means, some. How, how do you know if I'm domiciled in a state? I'm domiciled in a state if that's my permanent, fixed, true home 
to which I will return when absent. Yeah, but that's you. What about a corporation? Same thing. Okay. Corporation can have two. So domiciles. they have a place of business in the state. They're domiciled in the state. Well, yes and no. It has to be the principal place of business. So if the if, if that's what if New York is where they manufacture their products, principal place of business. If New York is where the corporate executives meet for board meetings, that's a principal place of business. But that's so. But we have dual citizenship for corporations. A, a corporation can also be a citizen of the state where they're incorporated. Many, many, many corporations are incorporated in Delaware because Delaware has all sorts of benefits. So I could be a Delaware citizen and I could be a citizen of another state. So if I want to, let's take headline of the news. If I want to sue Starbucks mm-hmm. today in Philadelphia, yep. right? Then they're not, even though they have a million Starbucks in Philadelphia, they're domicile is probably Seattle, which is where they're located, Clearly. or wherever they're, and, and the state they're incorporated in, I have no idea that's what the right. state is. Okay, and that's fair, because otherwise, corporations would have to go to every single state to defend every single cause of action Correct. all the time. But, okay. if the cause of action arose because of some activity that Starbucks or an employee engaged in, in the state of Pennsylvania. Right, I understand that. Now I got specific jurisdiction. Okay, fair enough. Okay, all right, so. Exam. Yeah. I tell students, if you're confronted with a question involving personal jurisdiction over a non-resident, non-present defendant, then you must run the problem through three tests. Okay. One, the purposeful direction test. Two, and see how it comes out. Right. Second, the purposeful availment test. And I like to say three, the volume value hazard, because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. I think, I mean, we just don't know. All right, and it's still floating out there. No it's, one's it's there. overruled it, it's there. That's okay. Right. But now, before we finish that, after you do the contact analysis, then you must do the fairness analysis. All right. And what does that mean? You're looking at fairness to the plaintiff. The mm-hmm. plaintiff chose the form. Is this a convenient form for the plaintiff? Are all the witnesses in that state? It's called, it's the reverse of the form non-convenience argument. Mm-hmm. I call it the form convenience argument. Mm-hmm. It's a convenient form. Mm-hmm. That's looking at the plaintiff's interest. Then look at the defendant's interest. Does, does the defendant have a, a defense that's mobile? Or is it rooted? So in other words, if the issue is what I did in my, uh, what the company did in terms of manufacturing, and the jury needs to tour the manufacturing site, then... Taking me to another state is not convenient because okay. my, right. my defense isn't mobile. Right. It's stuck in that state. Mm-hmm. So that's looking at the defendant's interest. And finally, you look at the state's interest. Does this design analysis that the court will engage in after you do the contact analysis? All right, I see. Here's a classic. I buy a car in New York. Right. It's actually a case. Okay. I buy a car in New York. Right. I'm going to Arizona. Mm-hmm. I'm driving my car across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still domiciled in New York right. because I haven't arrived yet in Arizona. And while I'm in Oklahoma, the car blows. I have an accident and the gas tank blows up. And that's exactly what happened to a family. The Robinsons, a terrible, terrible accident. The court in that case concluded that there was no jurisdiction over the company in New York that sold them the vehicle. Why? They didn't purposely avail themselves of any business in the state of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. They didn't sell cars in Oklahoma. None of their cars were shipped to Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. They only sold a car to a New Yorker mm-hmm. who happened to drive it through Oklahoma. On the purposeful direction test, no. They didn't direct their activities to Oklahoma. 
And in fact, in, in the worldwide case, the, which was between Shu and Asahi, the court said clearly that merely because the plaintiff moves the product around, if the product is moving in the stream of consumption, that's not enough for jurisdiction. Once a consumer enters the stream and plucks the product out, jurisdiction ends when the consumer took the product and started to consume it. So that's a kind of hypothetical you could use. That, that sounds great. I mean, you know, it's so interesting to hear all this because what I say to my students when I teach any class is take a moment, take a breath, and think to yourself, what makes sense? Correct. What is fair? And I have to say... and. You know, of all the podcasts I've done, this topic of impersonum jurisdiction, and it's interesting because you're so all about fairness, you know, your civil rights expertise. It just makes sense. It's fair to both parties. This is truly a balance of interests between the plaintiff and the defendant. Yeah. The question is, where do you draw the line? Right. And there's no answer. And on an exam, if you're looking at it for those purposes, you can look at where they've drawn the line before and how the hypothetical facts of your particular case compare and see if they're similar or different, and if you can make the argument in favor of them being similar, similar or different. Yeah, and, 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 and in essence, when you use the direction or the availment test, you'll find that sometimes direction, if you're purposely directing a product to a state, then you're availing. That's easy. But if you're purposely availing of the state's activities or benefits, then you're not necessarily directing. Right. So I would say you can catch more fish with the availment test and the direction test. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they overlap, sometimes Mm -hmm. they don't. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of the test, I think, is to show the students that there's a divergence in the law and the rules can have different results. And a favorite question of all students is, if it doesn't say which test the the jurisdiction follows, what do I do? And the answer is you do them both. That's right. (laughs) In my test, I I never tell them. I know. Every test of mine is in the state of Green Plains. No, it's in the city of Green Plains and the state of Utopia. There you go. Every single one for all these years. Anyway, thank you so much for giving me your time. This has been really helpful. Great. It's a pleasure. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. So that was my discussion with Professor Randy McLaughlin about in personam jurisdiction. I found it really helpful, and I hope you did too. And that's it for today. Thank you to www.bensound.com for the music. And again, if you're finding these helpful, please subscribe on iTunes. We're also available on Stitcher and soon on Spotify. If you have a particular topic you uncovered or a professor you want me to speak with, tweet me at Lord of Fact.